0: We're live. It is Tuesday, April 28th, 2020, five o'clock PM Eastern time. The Guardian reports that 10 Downing Street is unable to say if Boris Johnson will face Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's questions this week. Kim Jong-un is still at a undetermined level of deadness. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have Preet Barara. And for those of you who don't know this, whenever Preet and I get together, the conversation is principally about adoption. So Preet.
1: Yes, sir. Let's talk adoption. How are you? All right. <laughs> you. What, do you, what do you want to what do
2: you adoption <laughs> I... of children? Adoption of like other states' laws, adoption of like, like adoption, what are we
1: talking so about? So adoption. I think... I think there's a moratorium on adoptions at this at this moment, right? Start
2: yeah. Well, to adopt you you
1: can't
0: yeah, you can't go within six feet of your adopted child. <laughs> um so uh welcome to In Lieu of Fun Preet. What so, are you thanks, doing?
1: thanks for having me. This is um, it's a new thing for me. I dressed up. What are you doing these days in lieu of fun? Um, I'm doing a bit of this. <laughs> cheers.
2: So are cheers. We cheers?
1: I'm watching, I'm watching a lot of television. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say for the first couple of weeks, I, everyone's still stressed and there's still a lot of anxiety and we've you know, known people who have had a lot of issues <clears throat> and we care about and worried about our um, older members of the family. But some point after about <clears throat> three or four weeks, you start to realize you have a little bit extra time in your hands. What show should we watch? And so different members of the family are watching different things, nice background. Um, I have chosen not to watch <clears throat> the Tiger King Oh, that's a bad decision. I've chosen not.
2: I want to my, hear your my kids reasons are why. watching.
1: You know, it's, it's first of all, everyone's watching it, which sometimes is a reason not to watch something. If the whole damn world is watching something, maybe I'll come back to it. It has not gotten. Do you the most do this positive. with
2: Titanic too?
1: I watched that eventually. I watched okay. that eventually back in in the old days. It has not gotten a great review from my older son. It you know, starts off kind of with a bang, but I'll tell you what I what I did watch that was recommended to me, that I'm amazed I hadn't seen before, uh, three seasons of Ozark.
0: Oh yeah, Ozark is amazing.
2: I just started watching this because Ben can't shut up about it. Do you also recommend it? I got to- I do, I got, very much. You think that it, it, it's not so great after two seasons, like the first two episodes. I'm like not super into it yet. Do well, I it's need not, to keep it's going? Not,
1: it's, not for, it's not for everyone. And there's, I'll tell you something, um, I don't wanna give anything away. First of all, Jason Bateman is incredible. And Laura Linney is also incredible, maybe even a slightly more incredible. And when you have characters like those over the, I can't, fun thing to talk about, over the course of seasons, you know, they're not static characters, they change, they change a lot. Yeah, they get worse and worse and worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like a version of Breaking Bad. You know, there's a bunch of, I've noticed there's there's always this character in these shows, whether it's um, Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or um, Ray Donovan, or or Ozark. I don't know if you've watched any of those shows, but in all those shows there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of sort of organized crime activity. And there's always the teenage daughter who has her own storyline and issues with her dad. And I wonder if it's like a required feature, according to some formula <laughs> that showrunners have, that you have to have that sort of weird relationship between the dad who's usually kind of a good guy, but also kind of a very bad guy, and the teenage daughter
0: who gets into bad relationships so i have a question about so interesting ozark cured me of any instinct i ever may have entertained to to have a secret money laundering operation um (laughs) one of the things that's interesting about it is how unglamorously it portrays the life and and you know there's the, the the whole the whole show is a portrait of these people who would clearly rather be doing something else, but have been some combination of trapped in it and become addicted to it or trapped in it and fear for their lives if they try to extricate themselves or some combination of it. Um, I'm curious uh, pre when you have dealt with white collar criminals uh of which you've done a lot how many of them have you found that a reasonable description of they're they're basically normal people who uh, got in way over their heads and can't get out of something. Maybe they're not even trying because they're past the point where they can even think about getting out, but they're basically you or me with a different, like a different, uh, fork in the road sometime much lower down in the tree and how many, like what percentage of them are just like different, you know, characterologically different, like, you know, really like they're criminals in their core. So I think it runs the gamut. <clears throat> and I don't know what the percentages are
1: uh, and how you would allocate them, but there were certainly people. And I represented a couple of people like this when I was in private practice, before I went to the U S attorney's office, <clears throat> where you have a guy who's basically a good person. Um, and you they're under a lot of pressure. I remember once we represented the, the CFO of a company, young guy, young kid, um, not married for too long. And, he needed to meet the numbers for that quarter. Uh, and this is, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, one, one quarter, he decided to fudge the numbers. He cooked the books a little bit. Uh, didn't get any personal gain from it. Did it, He thought one time because the business was going to pick back up, nobody would ever be the wiser. And and that's what he did. The problem is that's often the first step down, you know, towards the descent to hell. The next quarter, things are not better. The quarter after that, things are not better. and as As you know, if you've ever done any criminal work or you've read sagas or watched sagas about crime, the first time you do something like that is tough, right? Whether you're a hitman or you're a fraudster, it becomes a little easier every quarter. And before long, he was engaging in very substantial fraud. And then after that, we learned later, was actually engaging in self-dealing and embezzling from the place. Very contrite. He ended up pleading guilty in one jurisdiction. He's in the category of person that I think you're describing somebody who who didn't start out to be a criminal didn't have a criminal heart got in a bit of a bind couldn't get his way out didn't cut his losses and continued to do that kind of thing and then on the other end of the spectrum you have people like bernie madoff who my office prosecuted who was clearly a sociopath in in a particular way you know made up you every single that,
2: you don't think that that started with like the same type of like i'm just going to do this as one thing time it, it
1: maybe but then he made a dramatic leap into a multi you know tens of billions of dollars in fraud, complete and utter baloney while presenting himself to be something different. I remember, remember that the judge at his sentencing, uh, Denny Chin used a word that you don't ordinarily see with respect to white collar criminals, he called him evil. And so, and there are some people who are like that and do it without batting an eye uh, and don't care about anybody and have black hearts. But then there are other people who, as you describe are reasonably good people and they made a mistake which they couldn't get, <clears throat> um, they couldn't claw back and then there are people who just make, you know, the one mistake to do the one thing the one time, but they're caught for that, and that still ends up being a crime. So I think it's the whole range.
2: I'm really so if we're in, if we're I love talking about putting like talking about TV. I mean, you mentioned The Sopranos, and then my other favorite show. I love The Sopranos. I actually took two classes on The Sopranos in college because I went to Brown, and we don't teach real things there. Um, but they're they, like wait, they in, were two in in they of was, education.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were. The curriculum had two classes on the Sopranos.
2: Yeah, it was in the modern culture and media department. And it was all one was compared, the one I took was like the, was the, we compared it to um, George Eliot's Middle March, which is actually <laughs> quite excellent. Right. Um, so, anyways, but the Sopranos, you've got this kind of anti hero. And I think that there's like, the, I mean, that is the, I mean, there is no better anti hero almost in my, mo- I think in modern TV than like Tony Soprano until you get to kind of the wire um and that's kind of i think this fascinating, even more fascinating like both of them are cultures that are people that are like born into a culture of crime and so you just described like people normalizing themselves to a culture of crime but like if that isn't even a question if you're born into it like if there's not even like a moment oh, like, yeah, no and then-
1: absolutely like if you're like if you're born you could be literally born into an organized crime family and you take over the family business like you might become a mortician because Your father was that happens all the time
2: yeah or drug running or like whatever it is and so this is actually so you brought up the thing about the the younger daughter who's like questioning what their father is doing i always thought that the reason that they had that was it was like the perfect colleague pollyanna in order to break out of that right like that perfect like that perfect person to kind of be like maybe this is not the culture for me Maybe this is like a culture that is bad and questions the normalcy, right? right? I don't know. Right. That's kind of. Well, did how you I
1: did you watch Breaking Bad? Yes. Cause that's another sort of. I don't know how you.
2: No, totally. How you
1: place that in the in the pantheon? How many classes did you take on Breaking Bad?
2: Um, it wasn't. I'm not oh. that. I'm not that young. <laughs> so like, there wasn't. There was no Breaking Bad. I had to stop waking watching Breaking Bad after the the plane. Um, episode because I just mm. like, I basically started just having like heart attacks. It was, it was just a very stressful show, um, um, but yeah.
1: I mean, what makes these shows also is the, the act. I mean, Brian Cranston is one of the greatest actors <clears throat> alive today. So good. I mean, good. it's unbelievable.
2: So good. So I
1: want
0: to test your nerddom, Preet. Oh no. Did you listen I, to- are, Do we have a D-C- drinking C- game going? The DC sure. circuits argument-
2: in, We can do in, it. it. Again, today. Wait you're going I right for the core questions
1: i did not can we can we stay Can we do some more tv <laughs>
2: well yeah. it was tv it was on youtube
1: i did not see it how it's was like, it how did it how did
0: it go oh i think uh i think the unbanked dc circuit will almost certainly uh reverse the panel and uh give Who is the panel the panel so this is the um The House's subpoena to Don McGahn Mm -hmm. after the Mueller report, and McGahn refused to show up. uh, And the Justice Department has claimed, uh, on his behalf, that he has uh, 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 a categorical immunity from from uh, a subpoena by Congress, uh, despite having spoken to Mueller and that material having um, been turned over to Congress. Um, and the panel ruled that this question was non-justiciable uh, and over a dissent from Judith Rogers. And this was on along with a challenge to Uh, the president's uh, reallocation of funds for the border wall, which uh, was also challenged by a house suit. So the consolidated case raises the question of whether whether the house can resort to litigation as opposed to political uh, tactics uh, to uh, confront what it regards and for that matter, I regard as administration lawlessness. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was like the D.C. Circuit at its best, to be honest. You know, you sort of regretted Merrick Garland not being on right. the Supreme Court, and you kind of regretted Patty Millette and David Tatel not being on the Supreme Court as well. Um, and um, uh, but I was uh, curious whether whether in your Drinking and watching TV that included uh, watching YouTube live. No, not of the D.C. Circuit.
1: Not to, not today. And and do you feel were were the parties and the lawyers acting supremely differently because they knew this was going to be on YouTube? Because that's the argument that people have been making. I think um, not well for years and years as to why we can't have real time. Video transmission of so Supreme this was Court not arguments.
0: video. It was audio. It's only, only audio. And I thought there um, was some. Okay, but, but I have a uh, pretty good controlled experiment in this because I have been in the D.C. Circuit probably thirty times when Doug Letter has been arguing cases because I, you know, covered all of the Guantanamo litigations that he supervised. Um, and so I know what a Doug letter argument looks like. And this was no different on that side. The Justice Department's argument was uh, excellent. Um, it was very well. I mean, the, the, the substance of the argument is extravagant, but it was made well and expertly and professionally. And I don't think, I mean, it would, it, it's definitely different from what it would have been in person, but that was because they organized it differently so that judges wouldn't talk on top of each other so they did it more like a congressional committee each judge got a certain amount of time to ask questions and then they circled back but that was a function of doing it by conference call not a function of live streaming it so i thought it was uh super great actually it was i mean it was really long it was like two and a half, three hours.
2: I mean, that's the other thing I was gonna say, On bonk is always long, but if you're gonna do a goddamn every single person asks a question, that's never, like, I don't know about the DC Circuit, but Second Circuit was never like that. Like, it was, like, there would always be like a, I don't know, I think about half would ask questions. I don't know. That was my, well, I, I mean, I, I guess it would depend, but. And you do you know, think
0: when the DC Circuit, some of them were more active questioners than others, okay. um, but, um, you know, I thought that you definitely walked away from the argument with a uh, very rich sense of the case, even if you hadn't read the briefs.
1: Do you think that when things go back to normal, whatever that means, with respect to the court, uh, Supreme Court and, and, and circuit courts, that there'd be more, there might be more of a move to have real time audio of these arguments?
0: So I think the DC circuit always real times its audio now. Um, it's really. So what do you think
1: will happen to the Supremes then? I mean, For the Supreme
0: no Court is is hopeless on this, and <laughs> uh, I, you know, the reason, as best as I can tell, is that they, nobody can force them to, and so, as long as one of them has a real objection to it, they're going to respect that real objection. And I mean, they're so finicky about other things in a way that no other court would be, you know, the reporters have assigned seats and there's the the whole thing is sort of grotesquely status-driven, you know. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I I don't know why they organize it that way, except that they can. But I will say that, you know, Arguments at the D.C. Circuit, in my experience, are consistently at a higher level of preparation than arguments at the Supreme Court. the The audio streams are available same day, if not live. And there's not the um, same
1: there's not the same opportunity that you would have at a trial or or a pretrial hearing, where there are witnesses to engage in histrionics and engage in drama. They're usually dry legal arguments, and you're trying to win. And the people you need to win over are not the people who are listening or watching on YouTube, but the folks who are in front of you in robes, right? And
0: they're repeat players, you know, in a way that is just not true in the, like, in a trial court. Um, yeah, there are some, re- there, there are a lot of repeat players, but, you know, at the DC circuit, an immense number percentage of the cases, one side of them is the civil appellate staff at the Justice Department, right? And you know the 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 percentage of cases that have the same 20 people arguing uh is very very high and so the idea that those people are gonna regard the cameras as their um as their constituency rather than regard the judges as their constituency seems to me very silly but can can, can i make can i make one observation please
1: um that is sort of Adjacent to this, that I've been thinking about recently in this debate, so for four and a half years I worked in the Senate. I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee, and every Congress he and, and our inspector Specter would introduce the cameras in the courtroom bill, and there are various versions of the bill and various amendments that would be um, entered and offered, uh, so that it would be more palatable to some senators, less palatable to others. Uh, whether you should have cameras in district courts, cameras in the circuit courts, cameras in the Supreme Court. And what I noticed about that, uh, the debates about those bills in the markup, different from some other kinds of things that people argued about where you could predict based on party and based on ideology, you would come out this way or that way. With respect to cameras in the courtroom, my observation was this. Um, you couldn't tell if a Republican or a Democrat would but one way or the other. It was basically a little bit correlated with whether or not as a Senator, you were generally comfortable in front of a camera. If you as a senator believed, I'm the same in front of a camera as I am in my office, as I am with my constituents, the camera doesn't distort anything that I do because I'm very comfortable with it. One of those people you'd be not surprised to hear, Senator Schumer, the other one, Arlen Specter. Some of the senators who were not so drawn to a camera had the view, I think it was a matter of etiquette and, um, and aesthetics, not so much law, um, like Dianne Feinstein, a little less interested in the idea of having cameras in the courtroom, and and were more prepared to believe the arguments on the part of the members of the court and 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 the bar that it would have a distorting effect. I don't know and if that's I interesting think, or not, but but that's how right. people thought no, about I,
0: it. I, I think for some look, and the extreme other side of that, um, you know, is just was Justice Souter, who is a genuinely introverted and shy person. And I think whose vision of hell might include somebody pointing a camera at him. Um, and, you know, and so I think, you know, I think there are like personal sensibilities are a big factor in
2: this. So I want to kind of follow up two things. Preet, am I right that you clerked for Jack Weinstein? Am I misremembering? That's incorrect. Oh, damn it. Some other person. okay. I thought that I had looked up something. It was, I think it was actually someone who came on before. Um, but anyways, I um, wanted to kind of point out Dave Posen, who is a, in, um uh, a professor at Columbia Law School um, and does a lot of great First Amendment stuff. did a wonderful quantitative study of basically the number of times Congress people mentioned um, on the, and on the floor uh, the, like the First Amendment and invoked the First Amendment for their party. Um, and there is this tremendous like moment and like I think it's like, I think it's like 1981 or 1983, whenever it is a C-span starts starts like kind of like live streaming right Right. that all of a sudden there's this spike in like that like the the righteousness of the first amendment in favor of like whatever it is that they're arguing and they're claiming it for their own partisan kind of politics and i think that that that's actually kind of very much to your point Breet, which is just kind of like there is like there are some people who don't change and there's some people that do and that also it's a different type of thing if you're running for Senate every six years, every two years, or whether you're a lifetime appointed judge, or like, or a political appointment in front of like, for to you know for the state or whatever else, um, and I think that those are kind of all in interesting questions. Um, yeah, I think that it's a very different. So at the like while I was clerking on the Second Circuit, we had a few arguments in which um, people couldn't make the arguments. Some judges and they teleconferenced in, and I would say that it was not the best stand-in. Um, right. And that could have been, like, at the time, Um, but also...
1: It's kind of like, this is not a good stand-in for an actual happy hour.
2: No, exactly. But it's... (laughs) Thanks. Thanks a lot, Preet. We don't don't
0: call it...
1: (laughs) No, I would like to see you folks in person. It would be much nicer to see you in person. Even though, in person, Rhea Perlman wouldn't be behind you.
2: I know. God, such good hair. And then, like, I just... I feel like... There was no
1: pandemic back then. Much easier.
2: I know it's so true. I have nothing. I have basically bobby pins and like, and like sweat. I just you Can, ask, like you a related, can
1: I ask you a related question. So for me, separate. I mean, I have my own sort of issue on, on cameras in the courtroom. The parallel of that for me is we have we have producers and members of my team who always want to have cameras in the podcast, which I hate. I don't like oh, them. I, I'm against them. I don't know if that makes me constitutionally
0: and, and conservative why, or not. why are you opposed to them? Just because they, because you actually- It's another thing. It's another editing.
1: thing to worry about. It's another thing to worry about. I'm focused on- But you on, also
0: record, at least in the time when I did your podcast, you recorded a lot more sound than you used, right? I mean, you're actually-
1: Yeah, we do oh, a lot of it. We do a bunch of editing because we, we go pretty long and then we edit some and they take out all the stupid stuff <laughs> that I say. God, God, God bless them. Um, <laughs> But, if, but if, the, if there's a camera too, then you got to worry about how you're looking. I
2: completely agree with that.
1: I, I I can't, I can't, I
2: can't. I think it's distracting. I think, but, but and the reason that I was interested, I was hoping that you'd clerked for Weinstein was because Weinstein, I, I don't know how familiar, I was also, I also clerked in the EDNY, not for Weinstein. I but, believe
1: for Eric Vitaliano.
2: Yes, oh yeah. Oh my, I see my research was pretty good there. Oh okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Better but than like, Kate's apparently. Uh, better than mine, <laughs> apparently.
1: Well, I, I know Eric Vitaliano. Because oh he he became a judge at the time that i was um i was working in the senate judiciary committee and he was recommended to the president of the united states under a deal even though it was a republican president by chuck schumer oh yeah was, i who do was remember very that. who was very excited to um to recommend a great uh lawyer and i, think, I believe he was a state court judge at the time
2: he was he was a state court judge but he had been in the legislature for 25 years oh
1: right yeah and somebody who was pragmatic who was from St- an, an Italian from Staten Island, who had never You're been on the East Coast before. I
2: love, I love both my judges. Like they were both the most wonderful. Like it was just a gift to like learn under them, and I just have such respect for them. Eric was like Judge V is like the best. He Judge v. Go. You
1: know, it's funny. This is what I realized. How young you must be, because I was, I was, I was, I had already been in, uh, in private practice, already been an assistant U.S. attorney, and I was working in the Senate. And 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 help prepare the senator's questions for for the hearing where, where Eric Battagliano got uh not very much grilled. He was a pretty non-controversial nominee, but yeah. where he got questioned.
2: It's actually, he's an incredible story because he had been in state in state the state legislature for like 25 years, not practicing as attorney, not doing anything specifically, not being in um federal court. And you will never and he was pretty much completely, and I think he is pretty much totally blind now like like physically blind he he has glaucoma and it's really bad but um he's senior now and uh he um but he uh you will never meet a man who did like did not work in the federal like rules of civil procedure and understands them better like he just is like he had this it was amazing He just really like it was very 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 um it was very interesting to work for him and he was very patient and low-key and wonderful and he was a great judge so yeah all right if
0: if you've got a question for Preet uh frame it in the form of a question in the q a so that we know you're not a zoom bomber and uh we will rapture you in so that you can uh, ask your question uh we got to start with maggie feldman pilch because she has an awesome question and cause she's Maggie, who's the only person who's ever sung an aria on in lieu of fun. Maggie, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you, Ben. Um and hi Preet, we met once when I was like a very small child. So you very small have child. No of that. Yeah, um, because I'm I'm from uh, the beautiful state of New Jersey. Um, and it was like a weird context that I barely remember, but I, I don't know, when you got famous, my dad was like, do you remember meeting him when you were like seven? And I'm like, sure, dad, okay. Um, do, I
1: know, do I know your dad?
2: Um, do you know Herb Stern?
0: I feel like maybe Every, Everybody knows somebody named yeah. Herb Stern. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I know six guys named Herb Stern.
1: Herb Stern. Yeah, ask your question, a Maggie. a
2: federal judge. But anyways, my question is, if you had to replace your wedding vows, with any Bruce Springsteen lyrics, what would they be?
1: Oh, so you know, I'm very bad at these kinds of questions um, on the spot, like this. Uh, you know, probably, probably, I think any lyric from Thunder Road, uh, anything about casing the promised land, um, I think, I think would work. That may not be sufficiently romantic, so don't <laughs> tell my wife. I, don't <laughs> tell my wife I said that. <laughs> I, but I think I think everyone in my family appreciates that the best that
0: for me the best song ever written is Thunder Road. Serious question though, how much of your Bruce Springsteen uh, uh, adoration is uh, because it's like become part of your persona uh, and like you know you have this whole kind of pre-origin story works. I have humor, no hobbies. I have no you know, hobbies. Like so. got fired by Trump, ran the SDNY, loves Bruce Springsteen, podcaster. Um, how much of it is that? And like, is it in fact, is Bruce Springsteen what you listen to when you're by yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I listen, to, I listen to the the Sirius XM, Springsteen station most of the time when I'm in a car, which is not a lot. This, By the way, I'm in my workspace in the basement of my home and what is over the, my right shoulder, as, as I was telling you before we went live, 1984 picture of, of Bruce. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very into Bruce, and obviously, you know, when I became uh, a little bit better known, and and it came to Bruce's attention that I was a fan, uh, you know, it escalated, and I I've met Bruce backstage. He gave me, can I can I brag about the best thing that ever happened to me?
0: Yeah, of course. Um,
1: outside of the birth of my kids, and and maybe maybe becoming U.S. attorney, was.
2: Please note, you did not mention your wedding vest. <laughs> and,
1: and my wedding Matt, and, and, that yeah, also, and that also, and that also, <laughs> I, we already covered that. Um, in 2012, I went to a concert in Connecticut where where Bruce told someone, a mutual friend that, you know, if Preet and his family come, I'll meet him backstage. I literally got a shout out from him from the stage. That's exciting. And since then, in the same way that you and I, I think began as Twitter friends, I became I become Twitter friends with Nils Lofgren and um and steven van zandt and so you know i'm not just a sort of a distant fan i get to interact with these folks from time to time i saw bruce springsteen's uh broadway show three times by the way one of the worst things about all this and i i <laughs> was don't mean it a great? amazing i mean little you know amazing i went once with my wife once with my son and once with one of my best friends and each time was was incredible I got to go backstage and, and talk to him and, and patty so yeah no my love for bruce is genuine and deep and real and expensive although less (laughs) less less expensive now because i mean look there are a lot of terrible things about uh home confinement that we're all subjected to at this moment and and i'm i feel blessed that my family is for the most part well and good but but boy do i miss the opportunity to go see a show i miss the opportunity to go you know to the movies we've been watching a lot of movies at home you
0: brought mike berbiglia
1: to you we (laughs) did We did on the podcast. Oh my God! How Stay did you do that? I cream. love
2: Mike Berbiglia. Uh,
1: you know what? I felt in the first few weeks of this. I, I you know, we, um, my father-in-law passed, uh, not from the COVID virus, and it was it was a very difficult time. There was a lot of sadness everywhere, in, in my house, and none of us could go and be with him at the end, which is the sad part. And you know, I'm friendly with Mike just from from other things, uh, and you know, I thought. Someone said to me, I, I wrote about this recently, Andy Slavitt has been talking a lot about the coronavirus, said something very important, which is very obvious, but I think we don't take to heart. And that is, and I think we're doing some of this here, you know, it's still okay to laugh. Right. And in the midst of death and, and tragedy and the economy imploding and people aren't able to hug each other anymore and see your friends, you know, you kind of need some laughter. And Mike came on and he did an hour of funny stuff. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, not, not everyone thought that was appropriate in the middle of this uh, i disagree with them you know we talked about some of these you know shows we're watching the other thing that i started doing you know a few weeks ago is when the president began his white house briefings i began turning them off catching up with the news later and instead watching an episode of curb your enthusiasm i think well we it need is to
0: not an accident when you ask about the timing of in Lieu of fun that it overlaps with the timing of the president's briefing when we were thinking of like <laughs> right. like but he's what, always late. what would be well we we can't control his timing, but what's like a good thing to be doing when the president gives that briefing? How about something else? <laughs> you know, it so involves
1: that you, a
3: cocktail
0: exactly all right, Andrew Ross, the floor is yours. ask hashtag AskPreet.
3: thank you. I'm enjoying this very much. Um, I was a little frustrated with what I thought was the lack of aggressiveness by the House Democrats when they took over, and immediately got stonewalled on subpoena after subpoena and other requests to the administration. And I was wondering what you would think, whether they could have and should have uh, done some sort of an emergency petition in federal court earlier on, uh, pointing out, you know how. How timeliness was was important for the court to hear it on an emergency basis and perhaps to bundle, you know, three or four of the most outstanding and critical issues. Even though they weren't technically related into some sort of omnibus petition to lay out for the court and for the public that this isn't just one case or another. This is an entire policy decision uh, by the administration and we think it's unconstitutional. I was wondering what you would think if if they had chosen a route like that.
0: Great question.
3: Yeah. So think you,
1: you know, I don't know, and I'm curious to know what you guys think. Look, the bottom line, both for Bob Mueller and for the House uh, Democrats, was they, there was a political clock, it maybe it was like maybe it was less uh, fixed for Bob Mueller, and more you know, discretionary for Bob Mueller, uh, who's not a politician, but certainly for the House Democrats. This impeachment inquiry began not until September of last year, and you know whether you like it or not, and there are differences of opinion about this. Adam Schiff understood we're going to go or we're not going to go, and and if we're going to go, given how long it takes to conduct an inquiry, take the depositions, have live testimony, uh, draft articles of impeachment, vote on the articles of impeachment, send them to the Senate, have an actual trial. You know they did it really, really fast, as fast as possible. And it still didn't get done until sort of the end of January, beginning of February, um, and I think there was always a concern that if you went the route of of going to the mattresses, um, and I appreciate that you're talking about some other possibilities like using an omnibus, it's a it's a bit of a crapshoot. Maybe some of these things could be decided more quickly than others, but I think you 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 put that against the possibility of of those fights dragging out till late spring. I mean, in this environment, imagine what it would have been like if in the middle of the coronavirus, I mean, all of that would have gone away, I think. But in the absence of that, you're now putting yourself towards the end of spring, maybe the beginning of summer. I think that, it, that for Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and others, they either wanted to do it or not do it with whatever they had, whatever evidence they were able to get, whatever testimony they were able to, to, to get, you know, earlier in the season than might have been able, than might have been possible had they pursued all those options in court. Um, I don't know if you guys have a different view. You know, I was somewhat critical. I thought they maybe should have pressed more, but I certainly understand why they went the direction they went.
0: I basically agree with that. I would add a couple of minor points. Uh, First of all, um, I I, I do think that there isn't a whole lot of difference between, there are, Three big cases, you're going to have to litigate and I don't see a way to consolidate them. So one is whether this absolute testimonial immunity exists or not. Um, This is a big deal and this this DC circuit case that was argued today is the test case for that. Um, If the President wins on this, nobody has to show up, you know, that's a really big deal. Uh, The second is how robust is executive privilege if they have to show up? And the third is this issue that is uh, currently at the Supreme Court in in the Mazars and other cases, which is, you know, does the executive branch get to decide whether Congress has a legitimate basis for a, a legitimate investigative basis for issuing the subpoena in the first place? Now, I don't see a way to consolidate those questions. They, they, and so I think they do end up having to be litigated separately. So you're gonna have three cases at a minimum before you can flood the world with subpoenas and expect that they're gonna be responded to in a timely fashion. Uh, once, you know, and I think once you're, once you realize that, once you accept that, it doesn't matter that much if those cases are consolidated or if there is one that represents the class. If Don McGann has to show up, a whole lot of other people have to show up, and they will not relitigate the question that McGann has litigated once there is a stable precedent on point. So I, I don't know that there's an alternative to this. Accept uh, the alternative that every past administration and every past Congress have done, which is to reach accommodations and not litigate the questions. But Trump is being extremely aggressive, and under those circumstances, you know you actually do have to litigate these questions, and litigation does take time. The second point I would make is that you know normally in a situation like this the house is very outgunned as a litigation matter because the executive branch has the entire justice department and the president on a personal level if you think about bill, bill clinton's defense he had williams and Connolly at his disposal which is a a brutally effective uh, washington firm um, that is not really the case right now I and mean, the justice department is still the justice department But the house is represented by an extraordinarily able uh, collection of lawyers. uh, Most of whom used to be uh, civil appellate lawyers at at the Justice Department or senior lawyers at the Justice Department. And so there really is a, a litigation capacity at the house and the president's personal lawyers have been, you know, ranged from the modestly competent to the catastrophic and disastrous. Um, And so I do think there's a you know there's an opportunity to uh, make some make some law here it's just going to take a little time. And then the final point is there's a huge variable in this, which is nobody really knows where the Supreme Court is nobody knows people assume that there's a five four ish kind of lilt in favor of executive power, but that does not answer the question how the court would resolve any particular case particularly the more extravagant of the president's claims for example like there's absolute immunity uh from uh from subpoena for certain uh white house officials and so i think there are actually a lot of variables in play and it's probably not reasonable to expect nancy pelosi and adam schiff who remember are the clients here to have devised a litigation strategy that was gonna bury the executive branch by now.
1: Can I ask a question of you guys? Which seems, I asked this of a guest recently, um, Kate, which seems longer ago, uh, the Trump impeachment or the Clinton
0: impeachment?
2: Actually, on a great <laughs> right.
0: fucking question. Um, yeah, it's it's not a question that has an answer though. Yeah.
1: I mean, different right. different it's times. like we're, we're we're in a time warp now. When I don't and know I, what the answer to that is.
2: And when I and I like followed the Clinton impeachment, I purposefully ignored the Trump impeachment. I just thought that it was all a joke. Like, and like, not because I didn't agree that the, he had done something, but because I knew there was never going to be any type of like end game that I cared about that was going to end up. And it was just going to be like a, it's kind of like watching a J.J. Abrams movie or an A. J. J. Abrams like TV show. It was like, I just know that the black box is like bullshit. And I like, it's never going to give me the payoff that I want it to. And so like, I don't, I don't engage. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Ben, what do you think? Um,
0: the Trump impeachment feels really recent to me. I, I had a, you know, I, I wrote all of the Washington Post editorials during the Clinton impeachment and that feels like a lifetime ago to me and the Trump camp the from, from the campaign to the, uh, Comey firing period to the Mueller investigation to the Ukraine stuff to the impeachment, to the coronavirus feels like a continuous wave that has crashed over me in a, um, and that I am only because of home confinement and the sort of forced stillness of the current moment um, taking a breath from. So that actually feels really recent to me and, and I kind of, one part of my brain knows exactly what you mean by the question and the other part of the brain says wait the impeachment's trump impeachment's over like yesterday
2: you know so it feels (laughs) great great what's your answer
1: man um it's like a lot of things right uh some things feel like they were a million years ago and at the same time they feel like they were three minutes ago yeah and that's how I, i mean i just feel like something about this pandemic has has wiped out a lot of things. It's it's um it's reoriented reoriented everyone. It's caused people to have different priorities. Um, you know p- people people. Uh, you, I don't know if you saw that funny meme. You know, showing the guy who's with his girlfriend and he turns back and he looks at some other person. That's like they're, a they're really old meme. That's very like- various versions of that, but the but the one that I liked most recently that was relevant and and maybe self indulgent was it showed the guy next to um, his girlfriend who. And the girlfriend was a former federal prosecutor. Yeah, I think
0: you saw that in a tweet from
1: me. <laughs> I, was you?
3: Was a me. bunch
1: of people tweeted it and he's turned around. And and the new thing, the new shiny object is, you know, doctors or infectious disease experts. Um, there's um there's almost no room to think about other stuff. Um, I mean, we do it, and you have have podcasts and 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 you're right, and I do too. But it just seems like I I've never seen um, an event. I mean, even 9/11, for some time, was like this. And I would have to go back and check. But the all-consuming nature—not just for people who talk, who write about health—if you're in journalism, this is this is the main story. If you write about health, if you write about science, if you write about politics, if you write about sports—I mean, there's there's no field in which this is not the most important story—and that has an effect of sort of blotting out for a lot of people what came immediately before
0: you want to have you, you, you in, in the spirit of blotting out what came before you want to have your mind blown the yes, summer I, yes 2000, no, 2001 <laughs> the summer of 2001 the the big political story the scandal that was like consuming washington for the summer that was obliterated by 9 11 involved what
1: i remember it's something very frivolous and silly because i've heard people make the point before
0: but i cannot remember it as i speak i have two words for you pre chandra levy
2: oh jesus christ oh
0: right yeah. well, that, that was a serious You're thing it was a,
2: <laughs> it was a serious thing. A um, so dead, i take that back deadly... Ga- it was not Condon.
0: frivolous <laughs> so this was, i take it back know, it, was, a, a, it was not frivolous it was not it was not frivolous but it was Like none of us have thought about this issue again.
2: Well, that that answered the trolley problem for us right there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right.
0: Speaking (laughs) of the coronavirus, Catherine Nyhus has a question about uh, a a, a question that links the world of the deep state and the world of the of the of the uh, coronavirus. The floor is yours, Catherine.
3: Hi, from Los Angeles. Um, Hello. I'm a cafe insider, Preet, so. Nice, good for you. Thank you. Um, so here's my question. The Washington Post today has an article saying that for months, Trump was warned in the presidential daily brief about the virus and that it was dangerous. And the media is making it sound like, holy shit, you know, this is a huge you know, revelation. And my first reaction was he ignores all new information. Um, you know, he was warned by other people like Alex Azar. Um, so how is this different? But the media makes it sound like this is substantively a different situation, and that there could be repercussions. So I'd be curious to know what y'all think.
1: Yeah, like I don't know that it's it's so different. Um, I think it's just it's just another data point. You know, another series of bits of evidence that show uh, the opposite of what Donald Trump presents himself as. That time and time again in different ways, and now through the the PDBs, he was advised, he was told, um, he was warned. Um, Lots of experts in in the government were screeching at the top of their lungs internally about how bad this would be. And you juxtapose those warnings with the kinds of things he was saying back at the time, like it's 15, it's gonna go to zero, it's gonna disappear, all those various things, all of which add up to, I think, a very impressive indictment, not a formal indictment, but a very impressive indictment of his leadership and uh, and lay at his feet a lot of responsibility for all these things, even though he has said literally in response to questions about whether or not he should have any responsibility, no, I have no responsibility at all. I don't know whether it matters to various people. I mean, some people ask the question, you know, is there a lawsuit that could be brought against the president? I don't believe so, but I think in the sort of um, in, in the march to ultimately hold people accountable uh, and and call out responsibility on the part of people who are important and in top spots in the government, the, the top of which, at the top of which is, is Donald Trump. I think it's another nail in the coffin of an indictment of, of his conduct.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I actually have a question about that. Like, nothing about Donald Trump's response to this crisis has been the slightest bit res- surprising, right? I mean, we knew he was incapable of empathy, He's shown no empathy. We knew he was self-absorbed. He has been self-absorbed. We know he thinks only about the political consequences to him. That has been on display. And we know he doesn't care about facts or science and he makes up whatever he needs. Um, And so my question is, like, to what extent, given how much his reaction has just been exactly what you would have predicted it would be like um do you think it actually creates a sense of disgust among people who are not already disgusted or are the things that are objectionable about it already priced into their calculations about who he is
1: are you asking me yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm You're gonna take best, a sip of my now. drink and and I'm gonna take a sip of my drink and think about that.
2: Well, I have another I would love to like pivot to another question, too. I mean, not to take Ben's question away unless you want to go, Preet, go ahead.
1: I'll just answer quickly. Look, I think it depends on how in the cult you are. Uh, and I think there's some people for whom in literally Trump was correct with respect to some people. You could have video of him shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. People would come up with an excuse. They would say that's a deep fake and they're not gonna be deterred no matter what. So it doesn't matter. Then other people who are more on the fence, I think this exposes Trump a lot more because it's harder to uh, to show that you've been expert when 57,000 people, 55,000 people are dead in America, more than in any other country when a few weeks ago he said nothing was gonna happen. And then I think there's another category of person, no matter where they were, if they had been personally affected by this and they have had a loss, uh, that changes people's minds about issues in a very, very severe way. They have a friend or a father or a a mother or an uncle who they think got bad information from the president of the United States and not enough uh, precautions were taken. By the way, this is still unfolding. I think there's a lot of room for people to change their minds. Let's see what happens in Texas. Let's see what happens in Georgia and Florida. There are a lot of people who are doing some wishful thinking about whether or not this is gonna go away. And depending on what those outcomes are for people in those communities, and a, lot, and a lot of people in red states, depending on how bad those outcomes are, I think there could be significant change, but maybe not.
0: So you live in the original ground zero of the-, the epicenter. I mean, I like you're I in-
2: I drove past it on my way out of town. You're in, uh,
0: I mean, I, what do you live? Five miles from New Rochelle? Yeah, very close. Very um, close. So what has the, I mean, to the extent that you've ventured out of your house at all, what has the atmosphere in the local community been like?
1: So I, I think it's changed over time. i mean i, I I've counted now. I'm on day forty seven of barely having left my house in Westchester. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of it was kind of strange. You know we we went and picked up our daughter from college because the semester ended early, and she's remote learning still in her freshman year. And you know, people asked the question, and we kept hearing stories about other colleges where where you know uh, students were on vacation, and the policy uh, was suggested that if people were from Westchester County, they had to quarantine before they came back, or if you're from Westchester, maybe you wouldn't be allowed to come back. So we became familiar very early on with this idea that like you know, being the Wuhan of America based on no testing and based on nothing other than the fact you happen to be from some area where, yeah, it's ground zero, but there weren't a ton of cases back then. And that's very, that's very jarring for a community. I think like other things, Westchester, New York City, who have borne the worst brunt of this nationally in terms of numbers, we're doing a little bit better now. You know, we've, we've leveled off. The number of hospital admissions is going down. People admitted to the ICU is going down. The number of deaths, I think it was 300 something, which is a crazy number to say that that's a positive sign. When weeks ago there was no one dying in America, you know, we feel a little bit, we got a lot more to go, but there's been a lot of community here in in this area, in the New York metropolitan area. And we feel we've been effective. We feel we've been smart about it. Maybe we could have locked down earlier. I think those questions are gonna need to be asked um, and answered, but there's a crazy amount of camaraderie. I'll tell you, you know, one thing we did, even though I'm in Westchester a, a couple of weeks ago we drove my family into Manhattan, and uh, and parked outside of Beth Israel Hospital. We didn't leave our cars. We had masks. We stayed, you know, socially distancing, so we could arrive by 7 p.m., which is the time, as some people know, when when people in New York City go out, uh, open their windows and bang on pots, to celebrate and thank medical professionals in the city for helping save lives at great risk to themselves. And when you watch that and you see that, you feel a lot better about your own situation, you feel a lot less sorry for yourself because you realize how many people are are putting their lives in the line. And that's sort of the spirit of what I think gets people in Westchester and New York City through this.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful concept. And I also think that it's like one of the things that um you know Ada Palmer, who is a Renaissance historian, was on the show yesterday and actually was like kind of tremendously great in kind of contextualizing the pandemic. Uh, I think in terms of like history, but also kind of like explaining how significantly different this is. And um, one of the things is like the amount of information that you have passing between people and like how people can get to certain places and realize that they can be in certain places and applaud certain people and do that type of thing. I think it's amazing. Um, I
0: forgot to ask Ada about this yesterday, but I heard uh, that uh, the first city so of course the word quarantine comes from uh, the word for 40 in Italian, which is you know the number of days that the Venetians required ships when they would come in to stay before they could dock and come off the ship. And that, that was a smallpox control measure. But the first city to actually do isolation was Milan. And the way they did it, it's, it's unbelievably brutal what whenever a house would have a plague in it they would just brick up the house with the people in it and thereby isolating them and they would die and they would not be able to uh communicate with others and that was the, a very effective plague control measure uh that um and is kind of the origins of what we call isolation.
2: I don't think I'll ever use the trolley problem again after, the, you know, after yeah. this. So I, life. I, hope,
1: I hope we're not going to end. I hope we're not ending on, no, on that I have note, we're not going <laughs> to end on that note.
0: <laughs> Thank here, you. But here's the ben. bright side of that story, which is I don't God, actually I, know. God, I need if, a double. Jesus, ben. I, don't, I don't actually know if it was true. If it's true, and I meant to ask Ada about it yesterday, and and forgot. So I'm throwing this out there as something that may be true about the history of Milan and uh, if uh anyone pandemic knows, control either. members. And if anybody knows the answer to this, uh, uh, please uh, you know, tweet at us and let us know.
2: Um, I have a question to end all questions and to end like oh to oh chromatomics people. Um I n- no, I just kind <laughs> of I think I wanted to talk about kind of like I actually, we started talking about TV and, um, i have always my parents um sorry pre you've like haven't watched the show before but my parents are both like state and local judges like they're just like they kind of do this i grew up with this my whole life um and so like law and order like my parents i'd be watching it obsessively my parents would just like be like this is bullshit. this is not how it works this is like garbage i mean granted they're from upstate new york but like this was kind of like the thing and um i'm just very curious as to like how you feel the depictions of the DA's office or the SDNY or like whatever else in Manhattan are like com- are like conveyed authentically uh, in in television, if they are at all.
0: And what's the yeah, best portrayal of federal?
2: Yeah, law what's the best portrayal? I don't,
1: you know, I don't, um, I don't know, um obviously all of them are are not accurate and i'll give i'll disclose that you know there have been times over the last three years that people have approached me and talked about making a series and so i've talked to to a lot of people uh who want to consult or want to know how they would go about making you know a a tv program or a movie or a limited series uh, streaming service the show (laughs) Um, and in talking to folks and my own observations i understand and and also being a, a TV and a huge movie fan myself, you have to take some liberties, right? You have to take some, otherwise no one's going to watch. You know, lots of things that happen in life that are depicted as uh, amazingly interesting in the day to day are awfully mundane. You know, cybercrime is fascinating and interesting, but it's hard to depict that when the crime is occurring at you know people just typing on their laptop. Um, trials are often excruciating. I mean, I. I've been partic- I've participated in a million trials and overseen a million trials, you know much of what happens is excruciatingly boring. Putting in phone records, putting in documents.
2: But I mean, um, like conferences with judges on Law and Order, for example, are like basically like for dum dums. It's like reading like yeah. But
1: like- but I think look Law, Law and Order, I think I think on the scale on the spectrum is one of the more accurate ones. The thing that kills me about shows like Law and Order, and, and you see this in the movies too, is it's always the the assistant district attorney is working. At their desk, and they have a little, you know, lovely lamp, and there's no overhead light, but, you know, <laughs> no mood lighting, and and the defense lawyer on a huge case, unannounced, will walk in and has a folded up motion in his breast pocket, and says like, "Here you go, here's my motion to suppress," and You're like, dude, there's a process, like you can you can email, there's a filing process, there's, there's elect- a, electronic that's filing, not how it works,
2: yeah. dude, you can't but, but, walk but, in here. But there's here. something,
1: but I but I get that if the main character of the show is the DA or someone very senior it doesn't do for drama purposes for that person to only be behind a desk. And that's why you end up seeing the United States Attorney or the DA, which never happens in real life, actually be at the scene of the of the search warrant or the arrest or has, I mean, I literally in seven and a half years as the as the leader of the, the US Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York, I never had occasion um, at a bar or on the street or at an arrest to have a confrontation with a defendant. Never happened, right? Do you Not regret with Steve that? Cohen or anyone else? I kind do you of regret
2: did. that there was I never a deep. Why wasn't I there a better watering deeply. hole for you, Preet? That was <laughs> where, like just like the watering I hole you that went d- with with your US attorneys and you were there and they knew where to find you. Do you
0: but, I'll, but I'll make don't, another point don't about, you regret about that, that Dinish D'Souza has never come up to you and say, Why did you do this to me, Preet? And you could event. look and you could look him in the eye and say, "Dinesh, you did it to yourself."
1: <laughs> You're intent on ending this on a on a bad note. First with the bricking up, yeah, of Why do you like? I trying to make this in better. Milan, and then you and then you went worse with, with <laughs> Dinesh. Um, look, so I'll, I'll give you an example of something that's sort of interesting, right? If there's ever a show about a particular occupation or industry, whether it's intelligence operatives. Or FBI agents, or judges, or I'm sure news anchors or whatever. There's going to be a huge amount of liberties that are taken to to get the drama going and to make the show more interesting. I'll give you an example of people in my office <clears throat> who have often been annoyed by the depictions of the U.S. Attorney's Office, for example, in Billions, as being unrealistic. Lots of those people, who by the way happen to work with the intelligence community, absolutely love and adore the show Homeland.
2: I'm I love that show.
1: Yeah, but Homeland is a is a much bigger perversion and distortion of what it's like right. to actually be a CIA, a CIA officer
2: agent. It's complete than, bullshit.
1: Then than, than billions is, but so you have to I think watch these things with a grain of salt.
0: So here's my my challenge to you all, is to imagine a show. So I don't know what percentage of the CIA is an analytical operation, but it's you know ninety plus, right? Most of the CIA sits there and and it's basically a giant think tank using a whole lot of classified information that is collected only relatively small components of it are operational or collect information. Most of it processes information. And so I was thinking like, what would a thriller look like that was about the actual CIA, right? Like a whole bunch of people sitting at desks Doing analysis.
2: No, that's not a fucking thriller, Ben. That is boring shit.
0: That's a snoozer.
2: snoozer. That's the other problem,
0: right? When
1: when people talk about making shows, I mean, we made, we, people made mistakes with the SDNY, and not everyone is perfect. But I never met anyone who I thought was a criminal who worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office or was uh, constitutionally unethical. You know, people make mistakes. And, um, and most people try to do good, and we screen them. And they had FBI background checks and everything else and you talk to people who make TV shows it's utterly boring to have only good people in a place yes, you have to have a villain absolutely you have is, to have a fraudster right
2: i'm so there for you for that like i like i'm like yeah well i sorry, think that really I, good people worked for your for like for the federal government for a while like i think
0: it would is, be a challenge that somebody know. somebody should step up on like make make a um you know do you know like yes you do. Audience, do you know how many people in the FBI are forensic accountants? You know like like a, like a movie about Are,
1: are the- you are you are you trying to are you trying to negatively affect recruiting at the FBI?
0: No, I don't.
1: <laughs> Leon, Leon Leon Panetta, Leon Panetta came when he was uh, director of the CIA and he accepted my invitation to come speak to the troops at my office. Um, informally, you know, off the record and answered questions. It was a great thing that he did. And people ask questions about recruiting. And is it more uh, easy or more difficult, depending on the timing to recruit people to the CIA? And he says, you know what? Every time a James Bond film is released, recruiting goes up. <laughs> so whether it's realistic or not, it, it moves the numbers a little bit.
0: On that cheerful note, uh, Preet, uh, go back to put, put your cape back on Go back. I to will put my I will put my cape again. Cheers, city folks. As the as the U.S. Attorney's Office does, you know, flying across the city, uh, using superpowers to stop crime, and we of course know you're running a shadow uh, U.S. Attorney's Office uh, out of your house in social distancing because that happens in real like
2: life. And don't do that. <laughs> like Let's go
1: back to the bricking up of families. <laughs> In it, yeah.
2: Don't my Billion's uh, questions look really great compared to Ben's questions now, Preet? Oh, <laughs> I, I think the uh, like the Preet
0: never really left is the point. He's he's still the 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 once and future U.S. Attorney of SDNY.
2: Well, I'm actually really looking forward to him being more than that. So someday, (laughs) and stop ruining it, Ben. (laughs) All
0: right. So uh, it's a pleasure. It's
1: a pleasure being with you guys. Uh, Be safe. Be safe. Great to have you. And thanks for doing this in lieu of fun.
0: Yeah. So come, you know, join us anytime tomorrow. Who do we have?
2: Kate. Uh, We have Tomas Ilves, former president of Estonia, to talk um... to us about electronic voting and mail voting and And it's gonna be great. And the one
0: head of state who has endorsed my challenge to Putin for a fist fight. Uh, So we're gonna, of course, talk about, you know, hand-to-hand combat with Vladimir Putin. Um, And until then, just keep in mind, oh, what's our sign off today, Kate?
2: Uh, I don't have a sign off today. And we-
0: Brick them in is what I say. Um, how's that for us?
2: Don't brick them in, is what I say. <laughs> don't brick them in.
0: Don't but brick us in. <laughs> I'll
2: see you later.
0: All right. Uh, remember, uh, until tomorrow. If you can't have fun, in, in lieu of fun, fun, you can still hang out with Kate and me.
2: Bye, guys. Thank you, Preet. It was really lovely to meet you.
0: Take care. Thanks
1: for having me.
2: Yep.